Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Well, hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country or around the world. This is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel, and I'm just always excited to be able to share thoughts uh, with you, libertarian approaches, libertarian values, uh, and basically things that work, which is, you know, independence, liberty, and uh, being able to to thrive working and and benefiting from your own activities. Today we have just the personification of someone who is my hero, and that was Milton Friedman, who is just just a sensational human being who was able to accomplish so much and started the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice. Regretfully, and this is just a black mark upon us, I believe, in our in our country today. We have so many schools that are failing our children. They're failing our children. And why? Because their parents don't have the ability to choose where their children are going to go and Uh, to school unless they are wealthy and can afford to send them to a private school. Or, like when I moved to Irvine, California, when my children were small, uh, one reason I did that was because, oh yes, the property is a little more expensive, but they have good schools. So I chose Irvine. In effect, I had choice as a parent to be able to take my children to a good school. And if I would have a they would have a teacher that just didn't teach very well, wasn't interested, wasn't qualified, whatever. Uh, I'd go to the principal and say, no, that's not going to happen with my child. Uh, let's, I want my child to move somewhere else. And other parents would do the same thing. So frequently then those teachers would be moved on to other areas where the, the parents didn't have that flexibility or that strength. So I had that school choice or actually with our son when he was in high school, we decided that the local public schools were not to our liking. So we sent him to private school. And so we had school choice and he received a really good education as a result of it from my standpoint. But if you have un- more less qualified teachers, they frequently are churned into the lower economic areas where they do not have school choice, and that's where they have congregated, and those are where the schools are failing our children. What is the answer? Well, in my view, very directly, and I've told this story before, that I was back in 1993 at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University in a drug policy conference. Milton Friedman was there, and during a recess in the conference, I was listening to him talk about school choice. And I, I asked him, I was it's the first time I'd ever heard of it before, and I asked him, well, Dr. Friedman, I'm a product of the public schools. I, I don't want to do anything to undercut those public schools. And he said, Jim, let me ask you two questions. First question is, if you are the 
parent of a high school age child, where in the world, what country in the world would you want your child to go to get the best education that he or she could? And I said, well, I'm not sure, but probably it would not be the United States of America. He said, I think you're right. I agree with you. My second question is, if you were the parent of a college age child, where in the world, what country would you want your child to go to get the best education that he or she could? I said, well, actually, I think it probably would be the United States of America. He said, I agree with you that as well. And you know the difference? With regard to colleges, universities, the parents can choose where their money is going to be spent. So they have choice. And in high schools, you don't. And I was converted to the whole school choice movement right at that point. So we had the Friedman Foundation that has more recently re-evolved into EdChoice, and our guest today is the current director of EdChoice, Robert Enlow. I'm proud that he is with us. He goes way back uh, and, and has been involved with all kinds of various good things. He has a background uh, in, in doing these sorts of things, and we're going to ask him, Robert Enlow, welcome to our to our All Rise show, and how is it, just explain a little bit about your background as to how you ended up being involved with the issue of school choice and ed choice. Welcome. Well, Judge, thank you so much for having me, and I can only tell you and your listeners and all of us around, we certainly do need someone like Milton right now. We are sorely missing him, certainly in the education reform uh, arena, but also, I think, for the rest of our country. Uh, his way of thinking about the world was was the right way in so many ways. His argument was that we don't want to pay twice for education, once in taxes and once in tuition, and that it's patently unfair that we say to ourselves, it's okay to put a child in a zip code that doesn't work for them and restrict their ability to, to, to get educational options, unless, of course, they're wealthy enough to move. There's something truly immoral about that. And I came to this uh, the organization on the first day it opened its doors in 1996. So I was lucky enough to know Dr. Friedman the last decade of his life. And, and I came to the organization uh, in a very different path. Uh, so I'm a, a person who was a social worker in the city of London, England for uh, five years, and then did my postgraduate study in liberation theology. So I couldn't have been farther from Dr. Friedman when I started at the Friedman Foundation, uh, and and yet this issue of educational reform uh, and educational choice brought us together, and now I'm a full devotee of his ideas of the idea of educational freedom. Well, I should say, you know, if there's one answer as to how we can get back excellence in school, it would be competition. That, uh, you know, if you were to, in fact, I'll I'll tell you, it's a bit embarrassing, Robert N. Lowe, but when I was, I was actually running for vice president of the United States in 2012 as a libertarian and found myself in in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and was going through these issues about how competition will help do away with poor schools and and how school choice would help. And people started kind of shaking their hands at me saying, well, wait a minute, Judge Gray. No, no, we're in Milwaukee. We, we don't have any bad schools. We've had school choice now for eight to 10 years, and all the bad schools have either gotten better or gone out of business and been replaced by good schools. So the answer really is competition. And if you're going to look at these things, uh, we have numbers of organizations, I'm glad to say. Uh, for example, Institute for Justice is hugely involved now with school choice. Uh, Scott Bullock was a previous guest. Uh, We have others as well, but the granddaddy of them is Ed Choice. 
What are some of the programs you have going on now? Give us some some enlightenment as to where this various issue is working now. Uh, what where are we in the in the world in the country that is uh, has a good program of school choice? And tell us how it's working, Robert Enlow. So despite what you may hear in the popular press, you know, the idea of school choice is not liked and, and, and people don't want it, uh, school choice has been on the rise in the last uh, decade and a half. There are now 65 school choice programs in America that are in 29 states, the District of Columbia, and Puerto Rico. Even Puerto Rico has a voucher program now. So this happened last year. What's, what's been happening is people are saying, we no longer want to connect our school, right, with where we live. We want the money to follow the children. So now there are four ways that you can do that, right? Well, more than four, because the way we look at it is any child who chooses a public school outside of their home district and that the money follows them, that's choice. Any child that chooses a charter school, which is a which is a publicly funded, independently run institution, and they could go to a charter school, that's also school choice. Anyone who homeschools is choosing a school. When it comes, though, to publicly funded, non-public school choice, there are really four ways to get money to families, right? One is through an individual tax credit or tax deduction. So I pay tuition, and I get a, a break off my state taxes. There are a number of those programs in America, but they're not that, they're not that big. Then there's the what we call the tax credit scholarship programs, right? So these are programs that allow individuals and corporations to claim a deduction or a credit off of their state taxes for gifts they make to nonprofits that give out scholarships. I call it choice with a middleman. And then there's directly direct vouchers, which is what Dr. Friedman originally uh, proposed way back in the day, which is where you have a child who wants to go to a non-public school. They go to that non-public school, and the dollars follow the kids there from, from the state. And then the newest form, and this is what's super exciting, the newest form is really about personalization. It's called education savings accounts. So these are accounts that are set up for families, and the money puts, is get put onto a card, either it's a, a reimbursement card or it's a debit card, and these families then can customize their child's education. So states like Florida and Arizona and Tennessee and North Carolina and uh, a whole host of other states this year tried to pass them. West Virginia is right in the middle of it right now. We're, ta- we're seeing families saying, I want to customize my child's education. I want to be able to go to a private school for half a day. I want to be able to tutor my kid in the afternoon in, in let's say, classics. And there's, what's happening with special needs families in particular, these families are finally able to provide the services for their kids that the traditional schools can't do. And ultimately, the one thing I would say about the way we look at school choice, look, we know that schools, all schools fail. I mean, they're, if we're looking merely at test scores, at some point, all schools are not providing test score uh, success. I mean, that's just the way that the nature of, of schools are. More competition produces higher test scores over time. But let's think about what families really need, too. What families want, they want safety, they want good curriculum, they want values, they want, they want smaller classes, they want good academics. These are all the things they want, and that's ultimately what the benefits of competition are. Is it gets you to all of those things. You know, to pursue the American dream, which we want for everybody, we want everyone to be able to have an equal opportunity. The fundamental building block of that is a quality education. And in so many areas in our country, again, I 
regret to have to say, in lower economic areas, which is frequent with people of color, we have those schools that are failing our children, which in effect just keeps those young people from being able to pursue that American dream. What's the answer? So Judge, well, I'm gonna, if you don't mind, because I, I, I think you're totally right here, and I, I want to make a huge point about this, and this is what the basics of Milton Friedman's idea was. We are saying to these families, these low-income families who want the best for their kids, because I don't believe that just because you have to be low-income, you don't care about your kid, right? That you want something less for your kid than someone who actually has money. That seems to me patently ridiculous. So we're saying to these families, right, hey, we're gonna, we know that you're in a school district that doesn't work, and we're not going to allow you out. We know that you, there's a school right down the street from you, and we're going to stop people from going there. I mean, this is happening all over the country in charter schools right now and in your state. But let's think this through for a second. The reason for that is because it is government-run and government-funded, right? So we believe, let's say, in the taxpayer funding of education. Let's say we, we buy that argument. That doesn't mean we want governments to run education. So the real question, if you think about it this way, and this is going to be hopefully not too incendiary, Look at the criminal justice needed reforms that were happening, right? We have we had government who were not really providing the right kind of services to people in urban areas. And there is a lot of reform going on right now. There's a ton of criminal justice reform. Why is it that people in urban communities have been up in arms about the community about that in the back end, which rightfully so because their children are dying, but they're okay to hand their kids to government in the front end? It's a real quandary we have, and I think this is why you'll see African-Americans and Hispanics support school choice at significantly higher rates than anyone else. And in fact, in Florida, you could make the argument that the governor was elected because of school choice moms who were African-American, who were low income, who said, I want this, I want this program to continue because one of the parties said no and the other one said yes. You know, this is one of the ironies from my standpoint, uh, Robert Enloe from, from Ed Choice, because it's the very people that would benefit the most that have been, in effect, a victim of propaganda saying that, oh, no, it's, it's, it's undercutting your education. Uh, I think that if the NAACP, for example, were to understand what is really happening here, they would be one of the most vocal, creative supporters for this. Are we making progress, uh, Robert, with regard to the NAACP and other similar groups, maybe MALDEF for the Hispanics? So we are, actually, but not with the NAACP. They actually uh, tried to put a uh, policy in place for their organization for a moratorium on charter schools last year, and it caused a big uh, riot within their membership. But I'll tell you some groups that are working towards it. Uh, United Negro College Fund is starting to come out and understand that parents, particularly their parents, need more options and more choices. You're looking at groups like uh, the Thurgood Marshall Fund. You're looking at uh, groups like uh, the Center for Advancing Opportunity, African Americans. You look at groups like 100 Black Men of America who are saying we need more opportunity as well, supporting charters. It's happening, and it's happening at the grassroots level. But what's not happening is is the fact that, that we're having an honest dialogue. You know, what's happening with the teachers' unions right now, and, and this is not teachers, let's be super clear, teachers often are trying to do the best for their kids. It's the people who are managing the unions, and that's a very different group of people. And they're now using these threats of strikes and walkouts as a way to do a policy tool. It used to be, oh, we're going to strike for wages and benefits, right? Okay, let's say we agree with that. Again, I'm not saying I do, but let's say we do. 
Now they're saying, well, you can't even have charter schools. We're going to strike because you're thinking about charter schools. That's what they're doing in West Virginia right now. And that's what they did in, in California, as you know. Yes, I do. I do. And, you know, it's just selfish. When I hear, oh, we need to devote more money for the schools, it's for the children. It's just, it, it's not for the children. And in fact, if you, <laughs> Sorry. If you look I'm at most, absolutely, if you look at that most all the time, public judge, schools, for the children, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the emotional approach, but it's simply not true. But if you look at most public schools, and again, this isn't my field, you'd know more about it than I, but you see most of the public schools are top-heavy with administration. And, you know, if I'm a really good teacher, I'm not dumb. I know where the money is. It's in, educa- it's in administration. So, in effect, I graduate out of the classroom where I'm really effective and into administration. In private schools, yep. religious schools, you don't see that top-heaviness that you see a lot more of the percentage of resources are focused on the classroom itself. Uh, do you find that as well, or am I uh, outspinning something that I don't? Don't understand. No, you are you are right on. And there's two points I'd want to make about this. And and if you go to www.edchoice.org, right, we have this thing called the staffing surge. So this number is gonna this number is gonna I hope shock you and your audience. Between 1950 and 2014, the number of students that uh, we increased enrollment in, in American education by 100 percent. We increased the number of teachers by 253 percent. Sounds reasonable. We increased the number of non-teaching staff by 709%. So you need to think that one through, right? So seven times the number of kids that were enrolled, the increase in enrollment, that's how many non-teachers we added to the system. So this is why people don't understand teachers are getting a short end. It's not teachers aren't getting a short end because of choice and because of charters. They're getting a short end because there are more non-teachers in the system than teachers, people who are taking money away from the classroom. And what we forget is there are three sources of funding, right? There's the state funding, there's the local funding, and then there's the federal funding. And these administrators and these people who are running these systems who are getting paid often exorbitantly uh, rates higher than the teachers, right, getting paid significantly higher uh, salaries, are, are not there to benefit classrooms. And so, you know, we're finding around the country teachers are up in arms. You know what? They are right to be mad. They're just mad at the wrong people. Yes, indeed. Well, who would the winners be? under an ed choice program. And from my standpoint, it certainly would be the children of the students, as well as then their parents, because they see that their kids are getting a better education. And it would also be the good teachers. You know, if, if I am a good teacher, at the moment in a lot of public schools, my hands are tied, I have all this bureaucracy and the rest, but, uh, and I'm not paid what I, what I would be paid under a private system, but under an educational choice competitive system, if I'm not being paid what I, what I deserve, you would probably, darn anyway, Mr. Enlow, you're going to you lure a teacher from my school over to yours because you're going to pay him or her more money, of course. So the good teachers will, in effect, thrive. It's the ones that are that are in the backward areas, or honestly, they get lazy because they know they can't be fired. So why should I put out the extra mile? I'll just go and kind of tread water, and you can't rid of me anyway. So that's kind of the way I see it. The winners are the students, you and me, our country, and the only losers really are the teachers that can't teach. Well, I think the teachers that can't teach, the the, the administrators. You know, are also gonna, you know, have to rethink the whole structure here. The benefits to society are immense, right? So, 
you know, right now we know that the voucher programs around America have saved in the last decade a billion dollars of taxpayer funds. A billion dollars, and they've educated children better. So this is a really positive story, right, because society benefits, and then we know kids are benefiting, we know families are benefiting. The data is, like, so clear on this, right? Families that are choosing get more involved in their kids' school, get more involved in their community. They vote more. They're better citizens. It's amazing what happens when you have the power of choice. But what's happening is you've got this system. Think about it this way. 1970, I think there were about 65, 70,000 school districts. A little bit in the 1940s, there were 100,000 school districts. Today, there are about 13,800. Wow. The kind of centralization it takes to run that kind of program is like the biggest monopoly we've ever seen in America. I mean, this is something that would make the old Soviet Union proud. Hmm. Uh, let's take a couple of steps back and make sure that we're not assuming information on beh- uh, for our listeners that maybe they don't have. Can you? Ex- I should have asked this at the beginning. Can you explain the voucher system? How does it work? What is the result? Who is involved, Robert? That's a great question. So let's let's just talk real quickly about how we fund K twelve education in America. So I'm a tax-paying citizen. I pay my taxes to the federal government, which takes about a 9% cut for education. I pay my taxes to the state, and I pay my local property taxes, typically. Each of those uh, taxes go in some portion to education. In most states, 50% of every tax dollar is for K-12 education. For most states, property tax somewhere ranges between 30 and, and 50%. So Basically, a significant chunk of our taxpayer dollars get collected for K-12 education. Those dollars then go up to the state or the various entities. Then those dollars get transferred to school districts based on what they call a per-pupil funding enrollment, um, uh, school funding formula, which only about two people in the state ever know what it means, right? So then, then it goes distributed down to schools. What a voucher program does is it says we want to collect those taxpayer dollars take it up to the state, and instead of the state distributing it just to one school district, one public school district, it distributes it to the families who say, we want to use it this way. We want to go to a charter school. We want to go to another public school. We want to go to a private school. We want to to use it for homeschooling. What What it's saying is it's basically separating the government financing of education from the government running of schools because we've misunderstood in this country that there's a difference between public education, which I am all for, and state-run schools, right? And I think what we're talking about in the voucher program, I know what we're talking about in the voucher program, is the money will go up to the, the various entities and then get distributed to families who can only use them for education. Now, who's using them? The vast majority of children who are using scholarships or vouchers or whatever you want to call it, or let's call them in higher ed, they call them Pell Grants, by the way. Um, The people who are using those programs, Judge, they're mostly low-income families. They're the ones who want to leave. They're the ones who want something better. And the data is that once they're getting the choice, their kids are doing better in school. Their kids are graduating from high school at higher rates. They're going to college at higher rates and persisting in college at higher rates, and they're becoming better citizens. That's what we know. Education is the key. That, that, that simply, fundamentally, is the key to uh, to success in the future. But there, there are some problems that we are hearing, and of course, a lot of opponents uh, focus on these, and they have a right to. Uh, what about there are there are some parents that don't care. You know, I'm otherwise involved. I've got more important things to do. Whatever. There are some parents that just are not involved in their children's education. Uh, 
why would a voucher system uh, help those children or, or, or help those parents? Quits? Maybe they're not going to care and they'll get lured into something that uh, is a waste of money. Uh, how do we deal with that or what's the response to that, Robert Enlow? So this is the best, the best news that I, I can tell you about this. So let's just take it for uh, granted that these families don't care, a large chunk of them. I, I, I would challenge that assertion, right? I think there's a lot of families who, who we would say don't care but actually do. Um, but we do know this. Areas where, have you, where you have a high concentration of private school choice and charter school choice, guess who improves faster? Public schools. The more choice you have, the better the system gets faster. And so what we're learning here is even if you say a family doesn't have the ability to choose or they're not choosing or they're really not involved, well, that's okay because what's happening is public schools are getting better as a result of choice being around them. Sure. What would happen if I am in public, a public school, uh, I get paid per child that comes actually for school day as I understand it. So if my customers start leaving, that is the students, the money goes with them. And so I'm going to be concerned. What am I going to do? I'm going to look around and say, well, wait a minute, they're going to this other school. What's that school doing that I'm not doing? And I will start getting better, to which everybody should say, good. Or if for some reason I'm dense and it just doesn't matter to me and I keep losing my customers, I will probably go out of business, to which people again should say, good, and probably be replaced by another administration, by some other outfit that will actually perform. So again, I think everyone will win except poor administrators and poor teachers. And, and my answer uh Robert Enlow, it was not as good as yours as to my question about what if parents don't care. But my answer really is there's a coattail effect that say I am living in a in neighborhood and I have children, but I'm my exercise, I'm involved with other activities and I'm just not caring particularly about the education of my children. But you live across the street and my kids play with your kids and you do care. And so you're going to insist that Things get better either in this school or they go off to a different school. And if they go to a different school, my kids are going to go want to go with your kids. And so, in effect, I will be the beneficiary of your activity. Is there is that just my argument or is there some reason to that, Robert Enlow? No, there's a ton of data that's backing what you're saying up. Uh, you know, to put it in another term, it's got a knock-on effect, right? The more choices, the more options you have. It has knock-on effects for communities and for schools and for teachers and for, for classrooms. And this is all generally goes in the positive direction. Now, look, we're, we're in the middle of a situation in America where we're in the middle of a fight about really who's going to control K-12 education for the future. Right now, it's being controlled at the school district level, and and we talk a lot about the achievement gaps. I'm sure you hear about this a lot, right? But let's be super clear about this. Only 47% of white kids at fourth grade can read anyway. So less than half of our kids in the country can read on grade level at fourth grade. We do have a crisis when it comes to our, our K-12 education, and there are people out there who argue that we should allow these traditional schools to stay open and continue to serve kids if they're failing kids, because then they can blame the kids and the families instead of them, right? One of the best things we did in our home state of Indiana, we're a national organization, but we happen to live in Indiana, was our voucher program here, which is the most expansive in the country. Our private schools take a test, right? And they get graded A to F. 
And we said to our private schools, okay, you believe in quality. If you get an a, a D or an F two years in a row, you can no longer take new voucher kids the next year. I want you to think about that for a second. Imagine if public schools were told, if you're failing, you can no longer take new kids into your school next year. You have to improve before you can expose more kids to the failure. What we know in Indiana, our schools are improving faster than ever before. That's just that's just so encouraging. The, the competition works, accountability works, which is the libertarian way, uh, and that's just with a small L. I'm not proselytizing, but if you focus on what works, you focus on responsibility, you focus on on results. Uh, it was Milton Friedman that said, and this would be a revolution in our country, that if only we would grade our various programs by the results, not their good intentions, uh, we would we would simply turn away from these failing schools. So this is what we're talking about here, educational choice, quality education, pursuing the American dream, and allowing education to be available for everybody, quality education. So I'm talking today with with Robert Enlow, who is heading uh, Ed Choice, which is the group originally sponsored by Milton Friedman, he is really helping us pursue the American dream for everyone. So after these messages, we're going to come back. There's an awful lot more to talk about, about quality education in schools, the pros and cons, the successes, the defeats. And we're going to do that again after we hear these words. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. This is Judge Jim Gray with my honored guest, Robert Enlow, who is running the Ed Choice outfit, uh, uh, which was taken over from the Friedman Foundation for 
pursuing quality education at all levels of our society, which is one of the clearly most important, critically important issues of the day. And so we're pursuing libertarian values, which are equality, which are equal opportunity. And, uh, and Robert Enloe and his crew are just rolling up their sleeves, bringing in many, many good qualities. But I, I'll, I'll ask you on the air what I, we were just discussing off the air during those important messages, Robert, and that is, you know, why do we have groups like the NAACP uh, not supporting this this movement because it would be of benefit to the lower economic areas in spades. It, that's a terrible thing to say, but it, it would it would really do it in capital letters. What 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 is your perception as to why we're not making progress with groups like that? So we are beginning to make progress with groups like that, but it's still too too uh, short. We're not doing enough, and I'll tell you why. I think the origins of the sort of school reform movement looked a lot like uh, the standard thing that the folks from the, the urban areas have come to not trust. It looks like white male people coming in from the outside. It really, there's a sense that people on the ground feel like it's done to them and not with them, right? And that's something that is unfortunate because that was never the intention of the school reform movement. But I think there's something to be said about that. Now, that's not the case now. I mean, you have a ton of people who are on the ground now of color who are working in the industry or working to do what's best for schools. And, and so I think the origins of this movement uh, that were a little bit challenging in the, in the early 90s. And, and so I think that became a bit of a problem. Now that's being challenged and we're getting more and more groups on board that, that are supportive of it. And part of that's just having honest dialogue, right? Where you live with them. Cause, you know, I happen to work for a guy who, who used to call the, the three R's, relocation, reconciliation, and redistribution. I tell him I agree with two of those three R's now. And one of the questions about this movement is you gotta live, there's just something about living where you're working, right? And so, I think part of this movement looked a little bit early on like there was a bunch of people coming in from the outside. Now, that's not the way it is now, and we're really excited about that. Um, plus, you got to remember, uh, people who uh, can't afford to move are still have to live there in these bad schools, right? And so there's been a lot of effort to reform the system and say, we've got the next thing for you, so people are skeptical. Now, the reality is, is based on what we know in public support, I'm going to shock you with this, and, you know, we know that people of color are far more supportive of school choice. Let me ask you, who are the biggest opponents of school choice? That I don't know. Well, if you obviously know it's teachers' unions, but it's the, the largest opponents of school choice right now are white, educated, suburban women. Uh, I don't, that doesn't compute for me. Why would that happen? So just think about it, right? So there's, there, let's, let's say there's a nefarious, the nefarious potential reason, the bad one, is these are folks who moved to suburbia and got theirs. They don't want anyone else to get theirs, right? That could be one nefarious reason. But the more likely reason, based on what we're hearing, is that th these are folks that have not seen any benefits from school choice. Their, their school choice was their house choice, right? And so they don't see how this can benefit them and their community. And so mostly that's because much of the school choice movement has been saying, well, let's only help low-income families, and let's not help everyone, right? So Milton Friedman used to say, a program for the poor is a poor program. That's actually not his quote. Um, his argument was, uh, though, that if you have a program that's merely and only targeting low-income families, it's not going to be a positive program. Now, I'll give you the idea of Social Security. 
That is not a program for poor people. It's a program for everyone, and you can't get rid of it, right? Pell Grants is a program for everyone if they have some level of income. There are some programs that are really good that are like that. You know who actually said a program for the poor is a poor program? The I people who are running the great society, the the, uh, the FDR's New Deal. <laughs> All the Democrats said a program for the poor is a poor program. Wow! And so what you're finding is is the 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 folks in suburbia are not seeing any benefit from school choice, and the folks in the in the urban areas are seeing a lot of people coming into their areas that that don't live there, right? And so there's a lot more relationship building that has to go on. So that's sort of the state of how grassroots uh, movements are going right now in school choice. Okay. You know, another black mark that people try to indict school choice and charter schools are that, oh, you're going to get these private schools that are going to simply make money and and that uh, they they could get away with murder on this. So what form of monitoring with regard to charter schools? Because we certainly want quality, and we don't want people that are going to teach a violent overthrow of the United States government or otherwise. So there's going to be some monitoring. What is the response when you have the criticism that, oh, they're just in there to make money and to short-circuit the education of our children? Uh, what's the response so, that Joyce would give to that? Such a great, great comment, and we hear that all the time. There's two responses to that that I have. One is, are, are you really telling me that public education isn't a money-making machine? It's $750 billion a year, and the only people who aren't private are the people inside the classroom and inside the schools. The textbooks are private. The, the bus companies are private. All the materials are private. People are making a ton of money off K-12 education. They balk, however, when you start saying you don't actually have to, to uh, uh, run teaching the way that, they, that those public schools want. They balk when you say you can have some freedom on the, on the governance, right? So on one hand, we've got to be really honest about how money is being spent in American education. It's being spent a lot with a lot of private companies. I mean, just think about this, right? So most school districts, you know what they have? Real estate offices, purchasing units, right? They're just, they're huge conglomerates, right? Many of them work and operate in, a, in the private sector, or many of the, the money goes to the private sector. That said, we absolutely want some oversight of schools. The question is, is what kind of oversight is best? The first and most effective oversight is a parent. If you give the parent the ability to walk away from a school with money in hand, the conversation is just very different with the school leader. And I'll never forget this. I saw a low-income family when they got their first scholarship. I said, well, why'd you leave that school? She said, because they weren't doing what I asked them to, and I gave them a couple chances. And then she was empowered to leave. That, that parental accountability has really got to be the first layer. But beyond that, then let's have some reasonable conversations. Take a nationally norm-referenced test of some kind. Right. Make sure you report to the types of kids you have and, and, and how their progress is going. This is not really rocket science. This idea that somehow we need to be accountable like our quote unquote traditional public schools seems to me to be ridiculous because my question back to you would be, how well is all this accountability work for improving our traditional public schools? Not really at all. Robert, you used a word that I think describes pretty much the entire approach, and that word is empowered. That, that if you have a voucher program, charter schools, choice, you are empowering the parents to pursue quality education. And as I was told in Milwaukee in my little story that uh, I was giving earlier, kind of embarrassing for myself, that 
they will seek excellence that if you empower them to choose where their child's education will will be made they will seek excellence and you know what they will achieve it they will achieve excellence if you can only empower them so so i think that's hugely important instead of tying them down with an anchor that they're going to have to take their child to a school based upon their zip code, which I just think is, is not what we stand for. And, and, but that's the way it's evolved. In effect, school choice by zip code is, is an obscenity. Your thought? Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, it, it is the second most immoral thing we've done in this country is assigning kids based on zip code. We have now increased income segregation and stratification in our society as a result of this more than we've ever had it before. It's a significant problem in our country, and we've got to figure it out because what we do care about is quality schools, but what we don't know is what is a quality school. Everyone looks at quality and says, oh, it's about a test score. Well, my son was special needs, right? And he went to a specific school that was set aside for him. There's no way that that school was ever going to be anything on a state test that wouldn't be called a failure. But that school allowed my son to get to a place where he could be independently living, which is what he does now. Fantastic. So there's this whole whole conversation about what is a quality school. A quality school is a safe school. It's a school that a family is choosing where they're feeling like they're empowered and can fit in. It's, it's a school where, where you see uh, the parents get more involved, where you see the teachers are being retained and want to stay. It's a school where the per- performance is also growing. Performance is important, but not the only thing. I mean, the reason Common Core died is because parents really understood that my child is not merely a test score. And I think when we look at quality, we've got to start taking it away from mere test scores and look at a whole bunch of other things. And when we do that, like fit, let's just take fiscal as a good conversation, right? Be nice to know if a school actually is keeping on budget. I always ask this of my friends. Uh, I'm a nonprofit. You know that. I can. You say to me, I need to know what your your uh, net assets are, Robert, and I can give you a one pager uh, produced by a, a full auditor that will give you that number. I challenge you to ask that in a public school. You can't find that. No, indeed. Okay, I'll bite, Robert Enlow. You said that zip code is the second biggest uh, fatality. What is the first The first biggest? Oh, I think slavery. No doubt. Oh, <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, I, I, mean, I, I argue uh, in many ways that the drug prohibition is the biggest failed policy in the history of our country, second only to slavery. And uh, I might even think zip codes would be there too. Uh, you know, I have another problem that people talk about. There's something which evolved called the Blaine Amendments. And these are areas in which local states, because it's it's been banned uh, federally, but local states can say, no, we can't have health, educational savings accounts or vouchers because you are going to take those to a religious school and we have a separation of church and state. Uh, my view is that's already long since been decided by the GI Bill that you have veterans that get out of military and they can go to the college of their choice, uh, Notre Dame, Sisters of Mercy, whatever, but it's not the government spending money on religious schools. It's the veteran. It's the individual. So I think that's already been determined and the blame amendments are simply a false issue. I assume I have pretty much convinced you of that. Oh, yeah. You're, so I agree that they're, uh, they have 
a false issue. There's no doubt. I mean, this idea that uh, the, the Supreme Court of the United States has actually said this in the Cleveland case, where uh, it is truly private choice. All that Ohio did was fund a parent who then, in their independent desi- decision-making, yes. would decide to go to a religious school. So that's, that's certainly the right track. Now, every state is a little bit different. I, I think people would be interested to know that the origins of these Blaine Amendments were rooted in bigotry. Right, so they were rooted in the idea that uh, that James Blaine hated Catholics. He thought Catholics were teaching papism, which is why he and Horace Mann were sort of working together to create what they called a common school system based on this Prussian military model with an agrarian economy. Just think about these words we're using and how our schools still look like this. Prussian military uh, set up, agrarian economy, don't like Catholics, don't like religion. This is really interesting. These are the sort of origins of our traditional public school system. And James Blaine came within one vote in the United States Senate of passing this bill uh, to say that no money can go to religious entities or religious schools. But he failed, and now it went into some states. And so we've been fighting this battle with the Institute for Justice. I, you know, their motto has always been: if you have a school choice law, you have a school choice lawyer, and I love them for that. And I've and we've been huge partners with them, and we'll continue to do that. Yeah, Scott Bullock and the Institute of Justice is just doing marvelous work, just as Ed Choice is under the guidance and stewardship of Robert Enloe. I'll tell you, it's it's private, but I'll disclose it anyway. That after Betsy DeVos was appointed to be the Secretary of Education. Department of Education, I actually applied to have a a job with her to assist her in getting the word out with regard to the benefits of school choice uh, and competition. And uh, as soon as, and this is my take on it, the underlings in the Department of Education saw that Judge Gray was applying and they found out who I am because I would abolish the Department of Education. I just don't think that uh, uh, there's any provision for it in the Constitution. We didn't have it before the Jimmy Carter administration and our educational system, public educational system was much better before the Jimmy Carter administration employed the Department of Education. But I made no progress there at all. Uh, And you listen to various people, frequently from teachers unions, in effect, condemn Betsy DeVos saying, quote, she hates public schools, unquote, which is flat out categorically not true. She hates schools that do not perform, but uh, it's just these vested interests. What do you think about the job that Betsy DeVos has done so far, uh, Robert Enloe? So I think Betsy DeVos has become the unfortunate poster child for folks who don't want to change the status quo, Right. Uh, there, Betsy DeVos has become a vilified person, right? And she cares deeply about the education of children. You know, what she, she cares, I think, more about kids than she cares about school type, right? And I think that's a real challenging assertion to, to the status quo. And, and they have definitely reared their head and, and, and have vilified her and put out a bunch of misinformation. She is, she is certainly working diligently to overcome that, I know. No, on the other hand, I think she's actually done uh, internally a very good job. I think she's doing her best to limit uh, over-regulating uh, schools. She's doing her best to try to provide more support for charter schools. She's certainly been supporting the Education Freedom Scholarship Act, which is just out there for a tax credit. And she's been providing also tons of support to traditional schools. You know, I, I think it's it's just the wrong thing to do to focus on one person who, by the way, is only in charge of 9% of the funding. It's the, the, the folks who are going against Betcher are using her as a great shell game, 
Think about it this way. If only nine cents of every dollar, you could focus all of the energy on that and, and not have anyone talk about the other 91 cents, you'd be loving it. And that's exactly what's happening, right? So the federal government only provides nine, nine to 11 cents of every dollar in K-12 education. But uh, we're not talking about anything but them. And so I think, I think she's doing a pretty good job. I, I know that she's having a, a lot of challenges, but uh, uh, she's certainly being vilified in, in, some, in, in an unfair way. I simply fully agree with you. She's a great lady, and she's she doesn't have to do this, and she is really putting uh, her her money where her mouth is in, in her activity. Uh, I can also tell yeah, you and- that, uh, in, in, I'll give you an example from the court system, that uh, our court system in the state courts in California, we have so many people that are working in administration, and what they're doing primarily is providing information, accounting, to Sacramento, which has another huge administration with regard to the courts. And so all they do is pass information back and forth, and it doesn't help me help help me resolve my cases whatsoever, but it's an enormous undertaking of administration. My view is that the Department of Education does the same thing. They have all of these various standards, and people teach to the test and everything, and it's just one big bureaucracy, and I think that, that it's not achieving any results in getting better education for our children. It's top-heavy with administration. Have you found this as well? Uh, it's significantly top-heavy. In fact, I was just getting ready to look at uh, between 1992 and 2014, California saw a 26% increase in student spending, but only a 6% increase in average teacher salary. At same time, between 92 and 14, California saw a 24% increase in students and a 48% increase in all of the staff. Yeah. So almost twice the number of teachers. So teachers were at 20% increase and students were at 24 and all other staff were at 48%. Have, so you, found the they're, they're, have you found the same sorry, thing is true with regard to private schools or religious schools? Because I bet the answer is no. No, absolutely not. They, they, they have to be much more nimble, right? Now, look, although there are challenges, every school system is different. The Lutheran schools are probably a little bit more nimble than the Catholic schools and, and, and so on forth. But that's just the way it is. They certainly have to be more nimble. They can't afford to waste a lot of money the way they're doing. I also want to make one other quick point about unions, right? So we've been talking a little bit about unions, and I want to be super, super clear with any readers or any listeners who are teachers. Teachers are getting the short end of the deal here in so many ways, and I'm a huge supporter of, of improving the quality of money and the quality of environment for our teachers in America. i tell you how we should do that. We should allow for union competition. This idea that schools <laughs> should only have one contractor to, to bargain with is ridiculous. I'd be all for more unions, but they just have to have multiple union contractors, right? So we need union choice just as much as we need school choice. Oh, bite your tongue, Robert Enloe. Imagine having competition in unions. I'm chuckling to that like like all the stuff. And I, I've got to slip this in as well because you're the authority and I'm not. But it's not a question of money from my standpoint of failing public schools. You go into something like the school district in Washington, D.C., where they're spending as much or more money per pupil as anywhere in the country, but their results are virtually abysmal. Am I correct on that? You're absolutely right. I'd love to have the money in D.C. for every school. It's well over the average cost of a private school. And New Jersey, it's almost up to like $30,000 a kid. I mean, you can go to a boarding school for that. But here's what, here's what matters when you think about that. 
So I'm going to use my home state again of Indiana. We have public schools, we have charter schools, we have home schools, uh, we have vouchers, right? So, so a child who is a third grader in our city, our state's largest school district, Indianapolis Public Schools, third grader, uh, male child, uh, African American boy, right? He gets $17,000 to go to a third grade school, third, uh, elementary school. That same child goes down the street to a charter school, right? High performing charter school, and he gets $8,500. That same child goes to a private school that's super high-performing, and he only gets $4,500. Someone's got to tell me why that same child is worth $13,000 left because he went to a different school type. That's a it's immoral, and, and the money is just being used in the wrong way. That's just a compelling argument. And we need to uh, – people should learn more about this, and one way they can do it is to go to your website. Uh, what is it again, please, Robert Enloe? So it's edchoice.org, edchoice.org, and we have a ton of research. And there's something called the ABCs of school choice, which will give you every single bit of of the choice programs around the country, all of the 65 programs. There's something called the Ed Choice 101 Study Guide, which I was just looking at, and I just found out that we there are over 142 new studies out there, right? And you know how many of them find positive results across the board? It's amazing. Almost all of them. Yeah. So I was just going to pause, pulling this stat up. When you look at participant effect, when you look at how public schools get better, when you look at how parents are satisfied, when you look at what happens to, to, um, the idea of fiscal effects or racial integration, guess who's better on racial integration, right? Yes. Private schools are better on racial integration, right? It's, it's just truly amazing what's happening out there. Uh, and the, the idea of school choice. And, and the reality is, is these facts are not being picked up in the media and they're being, we're being lied to about what's been going on. So I just think you should, your readers or your listeners are going to uh, come to our website and learn a ton about what's going on in school choice. Edschool.org, simply so. And uh, let me run another thing by you because I, I read an article in the paper probably last year that talks about the logical extreme of, of idiocy. And that is in the New York City school district, just in New York City alone, they were paying tens of millions of dollars to teachers receiving their full salary, but not to teach. That it was determined for various reasons, either incompetence or, or even some moral difficulties, that it was better not to have them in the, in the classroom. So they actually paid them their standard salary to sit in a gymnasium and play cards or read a book or talk with each other. Uh, and in fact, because they couldn't be fired. And that's the logical, ridiculous extreme. But am I accurate on that? Is that your understanding as well, Robert? So every state does it differently, and some have examples like that in New York. In New York, the old the old term for that was they used to call them the rubber rooms, right, where these teachers would go and sit all day because they were on some kind of 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 hiatus, whether it was forced or not, right? And they would be being getting paid for doing nothing. There's a lot that goes on in our contracts uh, that, that are really not known to people, right? So, for example, uh, uh, someone might be accused of harassment and they decide to voluntarily leave, the school district can't tell another school district about that. There's all sorts of things that if people got into it, they would be horrified at what's going on in our, in our in with teacher contracts. 
again, most of our teachers are doing a great job. They're really, they really are. I think we need to be much more positive about what teachers are doing because they are doing some great stuff. But we need to be super clear that, that it's, it's uh, the teachers' unions and administrators who are not doing what's in the best interest of, of their, their, own, their own constituents. That's the weird thing. If teachers wanted to get paid more, then the union should be arguing that Los Angeles County should go pay the teachers more, not the state of California. Robert Enloe's Ed Choice, bringing competition, bringing excellence to schools to allow people an equal opportunity to pursue the American dream. Uh, there, there's so many benefits by doing what we're doing here. Bringing education more local, bringing education, empowering parents to choose where their children will go to get that quality education. Uh, we can Just a small example is vocational schools that numbers of kids probably are not meant to be doctors of econ- economics or, or engineers or medical doctors that what they would really thrive at is learning a skill, being a mechanic, being a plumber, uh, being an aircraft mechanic, that sort of thing. Who is in the best position to decide what avenue a child should go through? The parents. And it's working really well in Germany, for example, if they choose occupational schools and have their empowered money to be spent going there, uh, we should be able to allow the parents to to make that choice and to pursue it. And there's one more, too, that it's it's kind of a a matter of philosophy or, or, or fairness, that if I choose to send my child to a private school, I'm paying twice. I'm paying my taxes to support the public system, and I'm paying again to, pro- to provide money to pay for my child's education. That just doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like quite the American way. That isn't elitist, but it, it is certainly something that people should take advantage of. So, Robert, you are really a guiding light. You're, you're upholding the Milton Friedman Foundation, and from Judge Jim Gray, that's high praise, because Milton Friedman is one of my true heroes. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Once again, what is that website? Where can people go to get more education about these good efforts that you're carrying out? So they can go to edchoice.org, edchoice.org, and I can't thank you enough for having me on the show. I really appreciate it, and I'm with you. Milton is one of my heroes. I'm committed to you, sir. If there's anything I can do further to help, uh, if you ever see Betsy DeVos, tell her that uh, at least I tried and and, and tip your cap to her for me. And I tip my cap to you. You're just, you're just really an inspiration. Thank you for all of this. You've given me a great deal of information, and I hope that our listeners are, are learning this as well. We care about our children. That's why we want to give them, empower them to go to the right school to get the education that they really deserve in our country. So there you have it once again. You know, In many ways, life is complicated, but it can be made more straightforward, understandable, productive by libertarian approaches. For, for example, just responsibility, which is key, and, and to be able to benefit by your own labor. That's what we talk about. And so when we say all rise the libertarian way, we will all rise together by employing these approaches. You've heard one here on school choice, which is a huge issue, particularly for the lower economic classes talk to them, get them on board because they will be be writhing to, to come to school choice for the benefit of their children and we can all rise together. Tune in next week on this Voice America Variety Channel Network where we'll have another inspiring, interesting guest and in the meantime, life is good. 
Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen by bonds that help us control. We are Americans all. Strengthen by bonds that help us control.